Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. Still searching for the Holy Grail? This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ today with a podcast team that's going to be slightly different from what you're used to. We're not going to take a deep dive into a special character or a unit through the ages, but instead we are going to take a look at the histories, myths and legends that have inspired the Bretonian army books, and that's mainly the 5th edition army book that we're going to look at. The reason for this is that a few years ago I read a book called Le Mort d'Arthur, or in English The Death of Arthur, by uh, Thomas Mallory, a 15th century collection of stories about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. More recently I wrote an article about the quest for the historical King Arthur in the magazine that I work for, and that also got me thinking about the Arthurian myth that's been playing around in my mind, and some other real-world stories and histories that form the basis of the Bretonian army book. But before we do that, let's talk hobby. Well, everybody needs a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. I don't have too much hobby news to report. I have been able to manage to finish my ogre command and the butcher that I was painting. Uh, they were practically almost finished anyway, I just needed to put a few noblars onto them. And now that I think of it, I still have to add some tattoos. Um, I have my ogres hailing from the Eyebiter tribe. Uh, I thought that was a nice uh, location uh, somewhere along the trade routes where they can just harass caravans. Not too far from the old world. So it gives them an excuse to, uh, say, take a trip into the Empire for, for some reason or to any other place where they can just uh, meet up with other armies. And I usually uh, try to at least put a few tattoos on the ogres uh, just because they have these large clear areas of skin that are really fit for doing so. So, there are two symbols for the Eyebiter tribe. Uh, one is from the 6th edition rulebook and the other one is from the 8th edition rulebook. Now, I don't remember which one is from which, but one of them is um, the uh, Great Maw symbol, uh, the circle of teeth that is set between the tops of two steep cliffs, two mountains. Uh, those represent the sentinels, a bunch of mountains that these ogres come from. And the other one is a circle surrounded by that great maw symbol, uh, basically an eye that's being bitten. I'm using both of these symbols interchangeably, and I'm going to use them both on my ogres. Uh, going to make both of those symbols reappear. And I also try to find creative places to do so. For example, on the gut plate, when you have a gut plate that is surrounded by by teeth or, or maybe uh, just those metal slivers made to resemble teeth. Um, I have a champion that's holding one of those bear traps and I painted the teeth of the bear trap red and also a little circle on the pressure plate. So uh, I'm trying to find a few of those creative places where I can I can get away with putting those symbols. Now, apart from my ogres, I have also started working on my entry for the paint challenge, the A-Team. Like I mentioned last episode, I have not gone easy on myself. I have made four zombies to resemble the four main members of the A-Team. Um, this is going to be, of course, the Z-Theme, and I am looking very, looking forward very much to getting these done and uh, putting them um, in with the rest of my zombies. I have also been able to get a game in. I played a lovely game of 5th edition. This was a test game. I am going to organize a 5th edition campaign 
on the Dutch Oldhammer event that is happening at the end of October. And for that I have made up a couple of scenarios and uh, one of the scenarios we tested um, this uh, this last week it's a scenario where you have before the magic phase begins or actually after the cards are being dealt but before spells are being cast you have some random objects on the table that are saturated with magic and that cast spells and yeah, we uh, we hit some glitches. Uh, we had some things that we want to iron out, and uh, it's a good way for me to to test these to see that they remain fun without being too much bookkeeping. So, yeah, that's uh, that was the main purpose of it. Uh, it was a lovely game. I had uh, I played Tomb Kings Fifth Edition Tomb Kings, a very nice list with the scrolls and everything, and. Um, it's something I've never played before, but ever since I first saw, I believe it was a Ravening Horde's Tomb King's Army on the table, I knew that I wanted to play those someday, and lo and behold, 20 years later, um, that time has arrived. I played against uh, Skaven, uh, was my, uh, my buddy Roland, who lives about half an hour's drive away. He played his Skaven, and... Uh, we managed to end the game in a draw. Um, because of the spells, not much happened in terms of the game. A lot of units got hit by similar spells that just basically stopped them in their tracks. And uh, that was a bit of a shame, so we need to find a way to work around that. And I think I found one. So I... I think at, at some point I will put out these scenarios on my website on gjsworkshop.wordpress.com and then people who participate in the campaign can uh, find them there beforehand and of course they will also be uh, printed out uh, at the tables. Then there's one more piece of hobby news that I have to mention and that is that we have a winner for the August Paint Challenge. Uh, it is Bruce Sigrist who made Puddle the Orc, uh, the Orc that was too hot to handle, or at least that found the weather too hot to handle. He melted away in a puddle. Very lovely character and uh, a well-deserved win. I actually had to put out a message on Facebook this afternoon. I'm recording this on Sunday evening and this Sunday afternoon Three out of four entries were at the same number of votes, and some of them um, had. Uh, well, if you give a like, that counts as one vote. If you give a love, a heart symbol, that counts as two votes. And we had three entries that were at six votes, and two of them had the exact same number of uh, thumbs up symbols and heart symbols. So. That was a bit difficult for me to pick a winner. Uh, I asked the community to uh, please vote a bit more. And uh, fortunately, you guys did. So now we have a clear winner. Congratulations, Bruce. Uh, well deserved. And I am looking forward to see what you and... Well, I don't know if you're participating this time. But what the others are going to do. Uh, what everybody else is going to do for this next challenge. Now, without further ado, let's dive into our main topic. It is, of course, no great secret that GW have looked at real-world histories, myths, and other fictional stories and franchises to flesh out the Warhammer world. I think that there are few places where that's more apparent than in the 5th edition Bretonian army book. The inspiration for the bright, colorful night... I think has originated in the 1953 movie The Knights of the Round Table, which is a movie about the tales of King Arthur. If you're into classic movies, I can highly recommend it. Uh, I think you can probably watch it on YouTube somewhere, maybe in pieces. I don't know how that works exactly, but uh, it should have been there. I know I watched it there a little while ago. Um... And it's no wonder that this movie, The Knights of the Round Table, which is about the Arthurian legends, that this is what Britonia seems to have been based on, or at least what the knights have been based on. 
So let's start off with the basis for Bretonia. Uh, Bretonia is situated in the Warhammer World's counterpart of real world France. And the names that we get for places and for people are almost exclusively French. The theme of knights in shining armor supported by peasant foot troops is uh, prevalent in the late Middle Ages, say from the uh, 1200s onwards. This is the time of the Crusades, the time of the Hundred Years War between England and France. This was also the time that the Arthurian Romance became popular. Uh, this actually seems to have been starting in France. Uh, there is a guy named Chrétien de Troy. He wrote, uh, was a, a bard, a poet. He wrote about Lancelot, Percival, the Holy Grail, somewhere in the 12th century. And then these and other stories were expanded upon and they were bundled in the 13th century in what has become the Vulgate cycle or the Lancelot Grail cycle. These stories were set in verse, they were poetry, uh, that was the tradition back in the day, and that was also the tradition in Bretonia. There are many chansons, and there's even one special character that we will touch upon later in the episode. That is uh, a bard, he's uh, singing those chansons during the battle. Now, this changed in the 15th century. Um, what happened? The imprisoned English knight, Sir Thomas Mallory, he used the poetic Vogat cycle and many other manuscripts probably, and a, a good deal of his own imagination, to fashion his own bundle of Arthurian legends. Uh, these were set in prose, not in poetry. Uh, Thomas Mallory called his bundle uh, Le Mort d'Arthur, as I mentioned, or The Death of Arthur, and uh, please, Thomas, spoiler warning. The tales about Arthur and his knights sprang up all over Europe in the late Middle Ages. There's even one from my home country of the Netherlands where there originated the tale about Lancelot. The tale is called Lancelot and the Heart with a White Foot, uh, heart as in deer. Perhaps the most famous and most beloved standalone Arthurian legend is that of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight which I will also recount later in the episode, as there is of course a Bretonian character that bears the same name. Though many of these legends are obviously fictional, at least King Arthur does seem to have a historical basis. He is mentioned by two medieval historians, Geoffrey of Monmouth and Nennius, and they lived in the 12th and 9th century respectively. Although there are other earlier historians, such as the uh, monk, the Venerable Bede, that didn't mention Arthur at all. Now, according to these historians, Arthur was a warlord that drove the Saxons from Britain and united the island, and then after his reign, the Saxons returned in force. There are several historical persons that the mythical Arthur may be based on, there's even a possibility that he may not have not even have existed at all. Uh, there is an instance that is of note that in the year 1184, the monks of Glastonbury Abbey announced they had found the remains of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere, his wife. Uh, but this might have also been a publicity stunt to gather money to rebuild the abbey that was dis uh, damaged by a fire a few years before. Now whether King Arthur is a real historical person or not doesn't really matter all that much. His tales, his legends have inspired countless artists through the ages, and even today you have many retellings of Arthurian tales both on the small and the big screen, and of course also in the shape of books. Uh, I do want to mention the TV show Merlin. Uh, I watched it a couple of years ago. I enjoyed it immensely, despite the show taking a lot of leeway with the source material and the historical portrayals. I also recently watched the movie The Green Knight. It was released uh, last year, I believe. It wasn't really my style. I don't think it was a very good portrayal of the original story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I think they went a bit overboard. It reminded me a little bit about that. I believe somewhere in the 90s there was an adaptation about Beowulf that also had a more steampunk feel almost than an actual 
medieval epic. Um, it's it, I I can imagine that some people like it, but uh, for me it's just not my style. Now, the Britonia in the army books was not only based on Arthurian legends, so that will be the main focus of this episode. I also have to mention that there are many references throughout the 5th and 6th edition army books to other legends and to real history. Bertrand the Brigand springs to mind, he is accompanied by Hugo le Petit, which if you don't know any France is little Hugo, who is of course a very tall person, and Guy le Gros, which would mean uh, Guy the Fat, or maybe even the Fat Guy. And this trio obviously mirrors Robin Hood, Little John and Friar Tuck from the English medieval legends that have been retold almost as often as the stories about King Arthur. There's also of course a very obvious link between some real world events. Uh, one of them that springs to mind is Rapunz the Lyonnais, the only female knight that there ever was in Bretonia, if I remember my lore correctly. And she was based off Joan of Arc, the famous French female military leader, who is now in, uh, a Roman Catholic saint. There's another nice link that we can find in the, with the real world in the 6th edition army book. One of the magic banners that the Bretonians can take is the Conqueror's Tapestry. And this is a reference to the famous Bayeux Tapestry. Um, I, if you don't know it, you can look it up. Uh, there is probably you've seen some memes that are based on this tapestry. It is an almost 70 meter long piece of cloth that is embroidered with the entire history of the Norman conquest of England. Uh, where William the Conqueror, the Conqueror's tapestry, uh, William the Conqueror invaded Britain and he became its first Norman king thus ending the line of the Anglo-Saxon kings with Harold II. There are also some things that are not represented in the game, but they are in the lore, uh, such as the Crusades against Araby. Uh, there were of course the Crusades in the early, I don't know, in the late Middle Ages, not in the early Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages with uh, Richard the Lionhearted and that also had a large impact on on England and on Western Europe in general. And the Crusades are also a part of the Warhammer world, although, of course, that was for an entirely different reason than what happened in the real world. And like I mentioned, there are several themes of Arthurian legend that are also ported over from this world to the Warhammer world. There is a definite Arthurian quality to Bretonia's founder, Gilles Le Breton. He united the country in a series of 12 battles, and according to the historian Nennius, the historical Arthur also fought 12 battles, and he lists them and their locations. Uh, both Arthur and Gilles were taken away by both after their death. Gilles, of course, as we learn in the end times, to become the Green Knight, and Arthur was taken to the island of Avalon, where it is said he was either healed or lies waiting to return to life at the hour of England's greatest peril. So apparently all the things that England has been through have not been perilous enough for Arthur to awaken, um, of course, if you believe in those kind of legends. Now there's a person who was literally lifted out of the Arthurian tales, and that is the Lady of the Lake. She is of course the patron goddess of Britonia, but in the Arthurian legends, she is a mystical creature that gave Arthur his sword Excalibur. Some say that it was Nimue, Merlin's apprentice. According to the legend that is made by Mallory, the scabbard of the sword has magical qualities. I have here the uh, Mort d'Arthur by Mallory, and I do want to read out a little passage here and another little passage uh, a little bit further along in the episode. Now please bear in mind that this is uh, medieval English, so it is a little bit different than what you might be used to. There are some words that might be a little bit different. Uh, I don't want to go into detail, but... Uh, 
I might pick out a word here and there and give you a more modern translation instead of just reading it out. And as they wrote, King Arthur said, I have no sword. No force, that means no matter, said Merlin. Hereby is a sword that shall be yours, and I may. And an is used as if, so if I can bring it about. So they rode till they came to a lake that was a fair water and broad. And in the midst Arthur was ware of an arm clothed in white samite that held a fair sword in that hand. Lo, said Merlin, yonder is the sword that I spoke of. So with that they saw a damosel going upon the lake. What damosel is that? said Arthur. That is the Lady of the Lake, said Merlin, and within that lake there is a great rock, and therein is a fair as, as fair a palace as any on earth, and richly beseen. And this damosel will come to you anon immediately. And then speak ye fair to her, that she may give you that sword. So anon came this damosel to Arthur, and saluted him, and he her again. Demoiselle, said Arthur, what sword is that yonder in the arm holdeth above the water? I would it were mine, for I have no sword. Sir Arthur, said the Demoiselle, that sword is mine, and if you will give me a gift when I ask it you, ye shall have it. By my faith, said Arthur, I will give you what gift ye will ask. Well, said the Demoiselle, Go ye into yonder barge, and row yourself to the sword, and take it and the scabbard with you, and I will ask you my gift when I see my time. So King Arthur and Merlin alit, they, they got off their horses, and tied their horses unto two trees. And so they went into the barge, and when they came to the sword that the hand held, then King Arthur took it up by the handles, and bore it with him. And the arm and the hand went under the water. And so he came unto the land and rode forth. There is a little bit more to this tale, where Merlin asks of Arthur, what do you think is more valuable, the sword or the scabbard that it came in? And then Arthur says, the sword is more valuable. And then Merlin says, in that case, Arthur, you are a fool, because the scabbard is more valuable, as long as you carry that scabbard with you, uh, even though you are grievously wounded, you will not die. You cannot receive a mortal wound. So in Warhammer terms, you get a ward-safe scabbard. This is only a small sample of the entire book that is over, uh, let me see here real quick, 400, uh, almost 600 pages long, including appendices and stuff like that. Um... I love the way that this is written, that it, that this sounds, this whole Middle English prose. It does seem a bit difficult if you, especially for me, if you're not a native English speaker, but also for many modern English speakers, I can imagine. But Mallory has the great quality that he uses many words many times. So you soon learn that there are maybe 50 words that, um, come up so often that you automatically read them the way that they are intended and not the way that they are portrayed in the book. Uh, one of them, for example, is the word and. And is often used as if. Think back to what I read in the beginning. Merlin said, the sword shall be yours and I may, which means uh, if I may, if I can make it happen. So... Uh, there are a lot of things here that are a little bit different, but not too difficult once you get into it. Now, the Lady of the Lake in the Arthurian legend is uh, different from the Lady of the Lake in Bretonia. The Bretonian Lady of the Lake, if you are talking about some real-world parallels, I think most closely resembles the Virgin Mary from Catholic Christianity. There are some parallels there, both have chapels dedicated to them, people pray to them for guidance and help, and they are both seen as the ultimate symbol of virtue and purity. And it is interesting to note that according to Mallory, King Arthur had for his symbol on his shield a depiction of the Virgin Mary, 
And that is um, maybe also a nice link to Bretonia here. Now, when you're talking about the Lady of the Lake and Bretonia, then the very next step down would be the Fay Enchantress, the ultimate prophetess, the high priestess of the Lady. And the Fay Enchantress is also a character that appears in Arthurian legends. In Warhammer she is known as Morgiana Le Fay, and in the Arthurian legends she is known as Morgan or Morgana. She is Arthur's evil half-sister. Uh, she does have that moniker Le Fay, and there's something interesting I found out when researching this episode. In Italian she is called uh, Fata Morgana, which is also a word used in Dutch to describe a, a mirage. And it's probably also known in English. I don't think that's a coincidence because Morgan Le Fay is a black magic using enchantress in the Arthurian legends. Throughout Mallory's Mordor, she plots against the Knights of the Round Table, but of course she fails to overcome them. Good triumphs over evil. In the end, she is uh, redeemed in Mallory's eyes. As Mallory lists her as one of the four sorceress queens that are grieving for Arthur's death when they are transporting the king in the barge to Avalon. This is of course a stark contrast to the Morgiana Le Fay from the Bretonian lore. She is a good enchantress that guides noble knights on a quest for the grail. She counsels the kings as a representative of the Lady of the Lake rather than trying to waylay knights and form devious plots. Now one thing that's interesting to note is that in the Warhammer Army's books, the Fae Enchantress is linked to frogs. And I have found no reference that the real world Morgan the Fae, or at least the Arthurian legend Morgan the Fae, has a link with frogs and I think this might just be a little wink or or maybe an underhanded uh, what's the term underhanded stab or something like that at the French Bretonia is based on uh, this is a British company that might not have totally forgotten or forgiven the French for all the wars in the past. And a frog is of course a uh, bit of an insulting term that the English use for French people. I'm not sure if that is what is behind this, but if it is, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not French, I'm not English, so I don't really have any means of judging that, whether it is... Uh, appropriate or funny or allowed. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm on the right track here, but that is a link that I at least formed in my mind and that might say more about me than about the actual writers of the Bretonian army books. Now one of the knights that Morgan le Fay bothers in the Morthlature is Sir Tristram or Tristan. Tristram, how many ways to spell his name? A large selection of Mallory's work is dedicated to the adventures of this knight. He is in love with La Belle Isolde, the wife of the vicious king Mark of Cornwall, who is Tristan's uncle. Tristan steals Isolde away from her husband and he goes with her to Lancelot's castle, Joyous Guard. He then decides to return her, he has not uh, slept with her, he has not defiled her, but he is ambushed by King Mark. He has a lance that has been enchanted by Morgan Le Fay. And the reason for that is that Morgan's lover had been slain by Tristan in fair combat earlier in the legend. Tristan was killed in a most cowardly and unknightly way. It was not when he was fighting in full armor, but he was playing his harp for Isolde. This of course leads us to the 5th edition character Tristan the Troubadour. He is a musical knight, he sings different songs during the battle, and he is accompanied by Jules Le Gester, or Jules Le Gester. I will read out his, um, his stats, they are not, uh, this is not a, a very extensively written character, but uh, might be nice to mention him here. 
Just on the Truba Jewel, avec Jules Le Jongleur, uh, I said Jester, but uh, I think that's a mistake many people make. Uh, the duo costs 205 points, and your army may include Tristan Le Troubadour as an independent character. When Tristan Le Troubadour took up the Grail quest, Jules, his faithful jongleur, begged him to go with him. Together they roam Bretonia, accepting hospitality in the castles of dukes and barons, where they provide entertainment and return for a feast. As they journey through dragon-infested country, Tristan sings his songs of noble valor to give him courage. The quest has taken Tristan to many battlefields where his talents have been greatly welcomed by the embattled knights. Their spirits are raised and their hearts made bold by Tristan's songs. Tristan has a movement of 4, but that doesn't really matter because he has a Bretonian warhorse. Weapon skill, ballistic skill 5, strength and toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 5, 3 attacks and leadership 8. And that makes him, I believe, your general bog standard hero. Like I said, he rides a Bretonian warhorse and he is accompanied by Jules, who has movement 4, weapon skill 3, ballistic skill 3, strength and toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 4, 1 attack and leadership 7. So a normal human, but with 1 extra initiative. Tristan is armed with a sword, lance, heavy armor and shield. Jules is unarmored and he is only armed with a slapstick counting as a hand weapon. And if you recall the model, this is the jester riding a uh, little wooden horse, a toy horse. Tristan rides a Bretonian war horse, as it says here in the next paragraph. And Jules is on foot riding a hobby horse. Tristan has taken up the grill quest and hopes to one day... Uh, hopes that one day someone composed a heroic song about his exploits. He has acquired the questing virtue and so is immune to panic. And in addition, Tristan also has the virtue of noble disdain, which, uh, if you're not a Bretonian player, um, or if you don't know it by heart, which is me as well, uh, going to look it up here real quick. The virtue of noble disdain. Uh, come on, what are virtues? There they are. Uh, Virtue of Noble Disdain is 15 points. The knight hates all enemies armed with shooting weapons as well as all enemy war machines. Uh, for his magic items, Tristan does not carry any magic items, but he has a repertoire of heroic songs of the noble valor equal in their potency to many magic items. The special rules, Jules Le Jongleur, has, is all, uh, he always accompanies Tristan, and although he is on foot, he manages to keep pace by his amazing acrobatic somersaulting. This makes Jules extremely difficult to hit with missile weapons, and he is only hit on the score of a 6. Jules is thus always moved alongside Tristan or anywhere in the regiment which accompanies Tristan. Jules' cutting wit is another rule. Jules helps Tristan when he is in hand-to-hand combat by distracting Tristan's opponent with jeers and wry comments, which can lash the pride of even the most terrible of foes. Jules is an excellent mimic of bestial noises and can do this to any creature in the known world. This has the effect of robbing Tristan's opponent of his first attack. The target of Jules' wit is always Tristan's opponent, who loses his first attack if he fails a leadership test on hearing Jules' jibes and japes. If Jules is slain or leaves the battlefield, Tristan is overcome with grief and will not sing for the remainder of the battle. Speaking of singing, Tristan has a repertoire of heroic ballads of Bretonia known as chansons. If Tristan joins a regiment and sings one of these songs, it fills the hearts of the knights with pride and inspires the unit to heroic deeds of valor. If a unit includes Tristan, you may declare that he is singing one of the following songs of noble valor. Uh, and you may do that at the start of the turn. The chanson lasts until the start of your next turn. He can then decide to change his tune or carry on singing more verses of the same tune to maintain its effects. Naturally, if Tristan is slain or is victim to a spell which stops him singing, the effect of the song is instantly ended. There are three chansons you can choose from. The Chanson de Bataille, 
This ballad tells of great Bretonian victories of the past and inspires all who hear it to match or even surpass the courage and determination of their forefathers. And a unit accompanying Tristan when he sings this chanson counts an additional plus one to its combat resolution score. The second one is the chanson du Grail. This ballad tells of the Lady of the Lake and her sacred grail. It inspires those who hear it with confidence and faith. The chanson dispels any spell cast against Tristan or the unit he is with on a score of 3+. This is a natural dispel as described in Warhammer Magic. And the last one is the chanson de Gilles, that's Gilles de Breton of course. This ballad tells the story of Gilles de Breton. This inspires any who will hear it with pride and honor. Any unit accompanying Tristan when he sings this chanson will count as having a leadership of 10. Tristan's lover Isolde also makes an appearance in the Bretonian army books in the form of a magic item, the Tress of Isolde. In 5th edition this is a 35 point magic item, it may be used once per battle in the close combat phase. Versus one foe only, the bearer hits on a unmodified 2+, and wounds on an unmodified 2+, and no armor saves are allowed. In 6th edition, the item is also there. In 6th edition, the item sticks around. It is now only 20 points. It has a little bit of fluff about Isolde, a damsel known for her terrifying wrath towards the foes of Bretonia. She imbued this delicate braid of her hair with enchantments of vengeance and righteous anger. Which doesn't really sound like the Isolde from the Arthurian legends, but well, the name counts. The Tress of Isolde still does the same thing, nominate one enemy at the beginning of any close combat phase and the bearer hits that model on a 2+, for that close combat round, regarding of any other modifiers. So sadly it's no more wounding on a 2+, as well, nor is it uh, ignore all armor saves, but I believe that there might have been a lance or something that did something similar, a weapon. I'm not really sure about that. I haven't played too much of Bretonian 6th edition, but uh, any Bretonian players are probably shouting at their device telling me which magic item that is. Now, in the army book, right before we have the entry for Tristan the Troubadour, there is another knight who is known only as the Knight of the Perilous Lance. This anonymous knight shows up at all tournaments, he's just there, and then after the tournament he disappears, he's never unhorsed, so I have no idea how anyone else wins the tournament then. Well, you can probably score points without unhorsing uh, your opponent. But there are also um, several tales of this in Mordhartur about knights going to a tournament in armor that's not recognizable. Once the still is of uh, the famous knight Lancelot, it is known that he never takes a favor from a lady, except at this one time he does so, and he uses that to, I believe, cover up his insignia or something like that, or he has uh, some armor borrowed from another knight. And since he has a token of a damsel, he is now no longer recognized as Lancelot, despite that his fighting style resembles Lancelot a great deal. The name of the knight, the Knight of the Perilous Lands, might also be taken from Arthurian legends. It is a tale about the Holy Grail, that there is one seat at a round table, which... Uh, by order of Merlin is left vacant, and this is called the Siege Perilous, and not siege as in a castle under siege, but siege as the ancient word for seat. This seat is reserved for the knight that will find the Holy Grail. Once again, Mallory spoilers much. The seat is taken by Sir Galahad, who is the illegitimate son of Sir Lancelot. And this brings us to the next topic, the Holy Grail. The largest section of Mallory's Mordartur is devoted to the quest for the Sun Graal, or the Holy Grail. This is supposedly the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. It has been used by Joseph of Arimathea to capture the blood of Jesus when he was pierced on the cross. Uh, 
during the crucifixion. Uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who is an ancestor of Lancelot and Galahad in these stories, he then took the grail to England. And all the knights of the round table, uh, they set out on this quest for the grail, they roamed the land. The story switches back and forth between several of the knights, some meet up, then they split up again. Uh, all of those knights are found to be unworthy. And Lancelot still holds out hope, but he eventually resigns to his faith that he also will be the one to find the grail, that he is just not virtuous enough. And in the end, it is Sir Galahad, Sir Percival and Sir Bors that find the grail. I do want to read out, if you don't mind, another passage from uh, Mallory's Mordator. This is the very end of the Tale of the Sun Grail, the Tale of the Holy Grail. And... Um, this is also a passage that is uh, more than most parts of the book steeped in Christian symbolism. So if that's not your thing, just skip ahead or maybe just listen to it for historical purposes. Uh, for me as a Christian, this is something that uh, also speaks to me on another level. Maybe it does too for you. Uh, maybe it doesn't. That's the beauty of art it can mean different things to different people now at the year's end and the self sunday after that sir galahad had borne a crown of gold he arose up early and his fellows and came to the palace and he saw before him the holy vessel and a man kneeling on his knees in likeness of a bishop that had about him a great fellowship of angels as it had been Jesu Christ himself. And then he arose and began a mass of Our Lady. And so he came to the sacring, and anon made an end. He called Sir Galahad unto him, and said, Come forth, the servant of Jesu Christ, and thou shalt see that thou hast much desired to see. And then he began to tremble right hard when the deadly flesh began to behold the spiritual things. Then he held up his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, I thank thee, for now I see that that had been my desire many a day. Now, my blessed Lord, I would not live in this wretched world no longer, if it might please thee, Lord. And therewith the good man took Our Lady's Our Lord's body betwixt his hands and proffered it to Sir Galahad, and he received it right gladly and meekly. Now wotest thou what I am? said the good man. Nay, sir, said Sir Galahad. I am Joseph, the son of Joseph of Arimathea, which Our Lord had sent to thee to bear thee fellowship. And wotest thou wherefore he had sent me more than any other? For thou hast resembled me in two things, that thou hast seen the marvels of the sun grail, and for thou hast been a clean mate as I have been and am. And when he had said these words, Sir Galahad went to Sir Percival and kissed him and commanded him to God. And so he went to Sir Bors and kissed him and commanded him to God and said, My fair lord, salute me unto my lord Sir Lancelot my father, and soon as you see him, bid him remember of this world unstable. And therewith he kneeled down before the table and made his prayers, and so suddenly departed his soul to Jesus Christ, and a great multitude of angels bore it up to heaven, even in the sight of his two fellows. Also these two knights saw from heaven, come from heaven a hand, but they saw not the body. And so it came right to the vessel, and it took it and the spear, and bore it up to heaven. And sithen there was never man so hardy to say that he had seen the sun grail. That is, does deserve a little bit of context here, especially if you are not uh, well versed in, um, in Christianity. Um, what happens here is that... Um, uh, Sir Galahad, he, he wakes up early before his two friends and he starts his morning prayers and then he meets this uh, this unknown man and he's maybe in a vision. Uh, this is, uh, turns out to be uh, a man sent back down from heaven 
the son of Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, this Joseph, he then uh, holds a mass, uh, the, the Catholic uh, ritual, the Catholic service, uh, dedicated to um, Our Lady, which refers to, uh, to Mary. And what then happens is that after this mass, he, they start talking and um, he explains that he has been sent back to give Galahad what he has so desired to see uh, the Holy Grail. And uh, the reason that he was chosen is because he, like Galahad, has remained a virgin throughout his life. Galahad then asks, he prays uh, to Jesus to, um, well, basically, I've seen everything that there is to see in this world. I have, uh, my life is fulfilled. Um, please take me out of this world, uh, take me to a better place. And that prayer is then answered in a uh, very visual way that uh, the companions of Galahad can also see. And then a hand comes down from heaven and it takes up the Holy Grail and also the spear, which is the uh, spear of Longinius, the Roman soldier that, uh, according to legend, stabbed Jesus in the side when he was on the cross. This uh, spear also features in this legend a little bit. Uh, it is then also taken away and these two holy artifacts are then never again seen. So... um there can be many things can be said about this passage and about the book in general. There are some things that Mallory put in because there are some. Um, one of the things that he put in in the book is that in those days, the Catholic Church uh, devised the doctrine that the the Eucharist, the the, the holy uh, wafer, is an actual representation part of the body of Jesus Christ. And this is also a passage taken from the Bible. And the reason that he does this is basically also political because people in his time were not really persuaded that this was actually the case. And uh, I'm not saying if this is the case or not. I'm, I'm leaving that for everyone else to decide. But this is just the situation in that time. So... Mallory put those things in, and I think he also put it in on purpose that a hand took the Holy Grail and the, the Spear of Longinius, uh, two of the most elusive and most uh, sacred relics, I think, in the Roman Catholic Church, as maybe giving an explanation why you can't go anywhere to see them. And there are some places where he does the exact opposite, where he says, if you go to this and this church, there is still a skull with a hole in it that was caused by this and this night. And uh, I looked it up a little bit. I, I, I don't remember the details, but I looked it up back in the day. And there are indeed uh, reports of such a skull having been there. And, well, whether or not it was originally tied to Arthurian legend, Mallory made sure that it was back then. So he both uh, takes stuff out of this world and, and puts stuff into the world and thus mixes up myths and legends. Well, this was a little bit of a of an aside, a little bit of a uh, uh, deep dive into the Arthurian legends. So I don't think that's why you are listening to this podcast. Maybe if it is and you enjoy it, then... Uh, please let me know, but if it is not, let's go straight back to the Bretonian army book. In Bretonia, the Holy Grail is of course not a symbol of Christ, but of the Lady of the Lake. And just as in the Arthurian legends, a knight set out on a quest for the Grail. Many of those knights, guided by the Lady, are allowed to drink from the Grail. These questing knights then become Grail Knights, Again, superhuman strength and a long life, and many of these living saints then become hermits, dedicating themselves to the lady and one of her chapels, um, until they die, or, uh, of course, occasionally they are called to battle. There is a lovely story about this in the 5th edition Bretonian army book, that I think captures the spirit of the Creel quest, and I also think it would not be amiss amongst the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. This is just one page, and maybe as a bit of a compensation for all the Middle English uh, Christian 
things that I read out. Let's just read out this story as well. The Questing Knight's Tale Galeron de Valois approached the fort across the forest stream. On the opposite bank he spied another knight also riding towards the fort. Like himself, he displayed the fleur-de-lis of a questing knight. Galeron knew what to expect and spurred his warhorse onwards to the water's edge. Then he heard the deep-voiced challenge of his unknown adversary, muffled by his closed visor but no less menacing for that. None shall pass, he seemed to be saying. Galeron rode into the water. None shall pass, the knight repeated his challenge and lowered his lance. Galeron raised his visor. I defy you. Then you shall die, came the reply, and the stranger aimed his lance and spurred his warhorse to the gallop. Galeron immediately did likewise. The two knights clashed in midstream. Both broke their lances upon each other's shields and, swaying in their saddles, reached the opposite banks. There they paused and Galeron lifted his visor once more. You joust well, sir knight. Why not join me in my quest rather than slay me? There is no honor in slaying a fellow Bretonian. At this Galeron's adversary raised his visor. I spare your life, he said, and added, I had no intention of taking it. Nor I of letting you, replied Galeron. It was a noble jest. Now that Galeron and the stranger had greeted each other in the customary manner of questing knights, they sat down to share a flagon of wine. Galeron inquired as to the stranger's name, which was Joanville de Roc, a knight from a distant part of Bretonia. They spoke of their exploits so far in their quest for the grail, and were amazed to learn that they had both recently experienced the same dream. In this dream, each had seen a stone circle in the midst of a dark forest. Within that circle were horned bestial creatures dancing, in the middle of the circle was a shining chalice. The two knights debated the possible meaning of the dream. Both agreed that it was a sign of, from the Lady of the Lake that the Grail itself was in the possession of evil creatures who would profane it with their foul rituals. It was this dream which had led both of them to the very forest where they now made camp. Galeron awoke in the darkest hour of the night and beheld the stars between the branches of the trees. The fire had died down to a few glowing embers. Swanville was already awake. Both knights listened to the noise that had woken them. Wafting through the forest came the sound of ritual drumbeats and eerie chanting. Both knights were accustomed to sleeping in their armor and without speaking got up and untethered their war horses. They mounted up as stealthily as they could, rode along the forest track, lying on the horses to find their own way. The sound of drumming and chanting grew louder. Fouler the noise was, the clanking of armor and harness would not be heard above it. The knights approached the glade lit by flaming torches and paused between the great oaks, concealed by their shadows. They saw the very scene revealed to them in the dream, the sacred grail about to be defiled, by the drooling mouths of capering beastmen. Galeron and Joanville grinned at each other and shut their visors. These made the sign of the grill and drew their swords. A noble battle cries rang out into the night and brought the chanting to a sudden stop. The knights charged into the stone circle, hacking and slaying beastmen on all sides. They had the advantage of total surprise and in the confusion, more than a score of beastmen were hewn down without returning a single blow. The rest fled into the shadows. Galeron and Joanville spurred their horses in pursuit. This was a mistake. No sooner had they ridden among the trees than they were set upon by beastmen, this time armed and bellowing for vengeance. Galeron felt the crude weapons battering on his shield and helmet as he wielded his sword to left and right. It was almost impossible to see the foe, but he heard the cries as his, his sword struck flesh. It was not until he found himself slashing at thin air and branches that he knew that all had been slain. Then he raised his visor and looked for his companion Joanville. As he gazed toward the flickering torches still lighting the stone circle, he saw Joanville, slumped in the saddle. His war standing still, surrounded by slain beastmen. 
Delaron rode up beside Jeanville and dismounted. He helped him up from the saddle and saw that Joanville's surcoat was stained red with blood. I'm dying, whispered Joanville. It is not my fate to reach the grill. Just then, the torches mysteriously perished, plunging the stone circle into darkness. The air became damp, and a strange mist began to rise from the ground. In the center of the circle, where the knights had seen a shining chalice, they now saw an apparition condensing from the mist. It was an image of a lady of incomparable beauty who seemed to be rising up from the very earth itself. In her hands she held out a chalice more wonderful than the one they had seen earlier. This was indeed the true grail. Both knights knelt down as the lady drifted towards them. She offered the grail to Galeron, but Galeron, like the noble knight he was, raised up Joanville's bloody lips to the chalice and watched as he sipped the life-giving essence. Like I said, a story like this would not be amiss amongst the tales of King Arthur, two knights meeting up, jousting, as was custom, uh, at least in the tales, I don't know if it ever happened in real life, but when a knight met, they immediately uh, jousted, usually not to slay the other, but just as a test of strength. Um, this happens all the time in the Arthurian legends, uh, at least the ones that I read. The final Bretonian character that I want to discuss that originates directly in Arthurian legends is the Green Knight. There is a Green Knight in Thomas Mallory in the tale of Beaumains, uh, Sir Gareth. That is a different one, that is one Green Knight of the Green Lands, who is a brother of the Black Knight of the Black Lands and the Red Knight of the Red Lands. Um, not very original in their naming, but uh, it defeats, uh, it, uh, it has a purpose. Um, Beaumains, he defeats all of them uh, in order. This is, however, not the Green Knight that we are talking about. And the reason that I mention this is because uh, when I wrote that article, uh, the visual editor, what's it called, the uh, uh, the designer who who makes the magazine, he took a picture of the Green Knight from this tale and he placed it alongside a text that was supposedly about the Green Knight from the tale Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So uh, I was fortunate that we spotted that and then I could tell him to replace the image. The Green Knight from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, that is the one that the Bretonian Green Knight is based on. The tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a very lovely tale. I'm not going to read it out in full, but I am going to give you a little summary. It's New Year's Day, and King Arthur and his court are gathered for a feast in Camelot. Arthur refuses to eat until he has either seen or heard something new and wondrous. At that point, the Green Knight walks in, he carries an axe, and he puts down a challenge. Any knight can use the axe to cut off the Green Knight's head, and then in one year the Green Knight does the same to him. Sir Gawain takes up the challenge, and in a single swipe beheads the challenger. The Green Knight then picks up his head, puts it back on his shoulders, and he walks away, saying that Gawain is to come find him in the Green Chapel. A year goes by, and Gawain sets out to find the Green Chapel, on his way to sudden, certain death. On his journey, he stops at a castle, and the lord of the castle, uh, Bertilak, he lives there together with his beautiful lady, and uh, also an old woman. Gawain wants to continue on in search of the chapel, but the, the lord says that the chapel is only a day's ride away, so Gawain has some time to rest. And Bertilak then proposes to play a game. He will go out hunting every day, and whatever he gains, he gifts to Gawain. Likewise, whatever Gawain gains in his house, he has to give to the Lord. The first day, the young lady tries to seduce Gawain, but he holds off her advances, except for a single kiss. And in the evening, when the Lord returns, Gawain exchanges that kiss for the deer that Bertilak killed. 
The next day something similar happens, but this time it is a boar versus two kisses. And the third day, Gawain once again deflects the lady's advances. However, this time she begs him to take her green and gold girdle, because it will keep him from physical harm. Gawain accepts the gift as well as three kisses, and that night he exchanges the kisses for a fox, but he keeps the girdle. Next day, Gawain goes to the chapel where he meets the Queen Knight. Gawain kneels down to accept his fate, but he flinches as the axe comes down. The Green Knight rebukes him and takes another swing, but this time that Gawain doesn't flinch, but the knight stops his swing, he stops the axe, saying that he was only testing Gawain. The third time he swings and he doesn't cut off Gawain's neck, but he only flinches it. Uh, he only he only nicks it. Uh, so there's a little cut in Gawain's neck, and then the green light he reveals himself to be Lord Bertelek, in whose castle Gawain had stayed. He is enchanted by Morgan Le Fay that he could uh, be beheaded and still live. And Bertelek explains that the two misses were for the honest exchange of gifts for the first two days and the nick for withholding the girdle. Gawain then proceeds to wear the girdle as a reminder of his own failure to keep his promise. But the Knights of the Round Table, they don't see it that way, they don't see it as a failure to keep a promise. And they then honor Gawain by all wearing a green sash from now on uh, to commemorate his deeds. A very nice tale, very nice legend, and of course my retelling doesn't do the original tale justice, especially if you can read it in the original Middle English. It has some letters that we don't have in our alphabet nowadays, and it is also set uh, in alliterative verse, so... um. It's a bit difficult to read in the original, but there are also translations. I can highly recommend that you look into that. The Green Knight of Bretonia is of course not enchanted by an evil sorceress, but he is a servant of the Lady of the Lake. Like the Green Knight from the Legends, the Bretonian Green Knight cannot be killed, but unlike the Arthurian Green Knight, the Bretonian Green Knight rides out against the enemies of Bretonia. He is always associated with a natural feature. For example, in 5th edition he can be deployed not only in the deployment zone but also within 6 inch of a terrain feature that is dedicated to the Lady of the Lake. And in 6th edition he appears from a natural terrain feature and he can even teleport from one such terrain piece to another. Now I don't want to go into detail discussing the rules and fluff of the Green Knight or the Fey Enchantress. Uh, I think these deserve their own uh, separate episodes. My goal was just to look at the parallels between the Bretonian army book and the history tales and legends that underlie it, in particular those Arthurian myths. In that context it is also interesting to look at some of the things that they didn't mention or include rules for in the Bretonian army book. There is for example no round table, there is no magic sword resembling Excalibur, no talisman resembling its magical scabbard, uh, something that gives you a 2 plus ward save or something. Merlin is of course absent, uh, Merlin the wizard that plays a major role in the Arthurian legends. And most of the famous Knights of the Round Table are also absent. I haven't found a Warhammer counterpart to for example Lancelot, Gawain, Percival, Galahad or uh, Mordred who is Arthur's son through his half-sister Morgoth and Mordred eventually kills Arthur in the Battle of Camlan, which, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, the uh, 12th century historian, was in the year 542 AD. Not even the names of the Creole companions of Gilles Le Breton bear any resemblance to these round table knights, and many of those are mentioned. I believe there's a list of more than 150 names of the knights of the round table from various Arthurian legends. Another Arthurian character that could have made an interesting Bretonian special character, or at least an interesting piece of lore, is the Fisher King. He is an immortal king who was tasked to guard the Holy Grail, but he has sustained an injury that prevents him from doing so. There are many versions of this tale, and in Thomas Mallory, this is a king called Pelham, who was wounded by a knight called Sir Balin, 
Uh, yes, that is the exact same spelling as Balin the Dwarf from Lord of the Rings. Uh, Balin used uh, the Spear of Longrinius, the, the, the lance that the Roman soldiers used to pierce the side of Christ on the cross. And um, this, this event is even given a name. This is called the Dolorous Strike, I believe. Um, other sources give other names to the mysterious Fisher King. I think if I were to put rules to him, I'd probably have him as something of a living grill relic way. I think that might be a cool idea. Someone who can't walk, being carried by peasants. And yeah, maybe some rules like, like an aura or boost something. Um, maybe some rules uh, similar to Epidemius in uh, later editions where every wound caused by a Nurgle character or a Nurgle unit or Nurgle spell gives you some extra benefits to your entire army. Something like that might be a nice idea. There are probably many parallels that I have missed or have not touched upon. There are even many more themes and symbology to discuss about the topics that I have mentioned here, such as the color green and the tail of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, the number 3, the number 12, they have both been in this episode uh, several times and uh, not always explicitly uh, there were three companions that found the holy grail in the tale of mallory there are of course the 12 um, provinces the 12 battles of arthur the 12 provinces of bretonia uh, the 12 grail uh, companions of Gilles Le breton so Several of these numbers have uh, also symbolic value, especially if you also look at the broader Christian uh, symbolism that is contained within them. I hope you will forgive me that I, if I made any glaring omissions, I am uh, not an author scholar, I am not a, a historian. These are just a few of my thoughts. I am of course curious to learn of what other parallels I may have overseen or not mentioned here. Or maybe if you simply have anything to add to the episode or any commentary at all, uh, you can reach us via the usual channels. I think that's going to be it for now. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.